the pastor stands up on a Sunday morning and in his or her pastoral prayer says, God, there are people sitting here today who are living with depression, barely hanging on. There are people here today with anxiety that it took everything that within them to get out of bed and come here today. And God, we recognize that among us. And Lord, would you bring your comfort just to mention, just to mention a mental illness in a pastoral prayer will be staggering to some folks to feel like somebody cares about what's going on in my life. Welcome, my friend. This is the weekend edition of the Coaching for Pastors podcast. Yes, welcome to the 25th weekend edition, our Saturday episodes, where we bring a guest on, a ministry expert, and we have a conversation that you can listen to and hopefully be encouraged by and grow through. Now, this weekend, I know that we are, uh, depending on where you're at when you're listening to this, where I live, we're starting the fall season this weekend. And it reminds me about SAD, S-A-D. And that's an acronym for Seasonal Affective Disorder. This is where it gets dark, there's less sunshine, you're not outside very much, and some people are affected by that seasonally where there's a lack of vitamin D, natural vitamin D, there's a lack of sunshine, and they fall into a seasonal depression. And a lot of people get depression around uh, the holidays. It's not just the holidays that brings them depression, but it's the time of year as well. Some people deal with anxiety. People deal with all kinds of mental health issues. And the makeup of our society and our culture today especially with media and technology, has only enhanced and enlarged that group of people that are impacted by mental health issues. And mental health issues, I'm not saying, but we don't want to use the word crazy. That's an old, that's an ignorant term. That's an old-fashioned, ignorant term that lumps people into some category uh, as though they're to be dispensed with and you know set apart in this special building somewhere. So many people have mental health issues, brain health issues, and we as pastors really need to be aware of that. I know that even on in my church, I deal with it. In my family, I deal with it. And it's something that is often not talked about still. It's talked about sometimes in public by certain people, but in individual relationships, private conversations, sometimes it's not brought up. It's just ignored. And it's something that needs to be brought up more. It's something that needs to be talked about. And Johnny, my friend who uh, does another podcast with me, he and I got together with Kay Warren and wanted to talk to her about creating mental health literate churches. And I'm going to play that episode for you right now. And I'm going to talk to you on the back end of it. And I hope that you learn and grow through this and that you become an even better pastor after hearing what Kay is about to share. Here's our conversation with Kay Warren. Kay Warren, so good to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for the invitation. Kay, you're busy this month. 
tell us what you're busy about this month. Well, this is Mental Health Awareness Month, and I am really thrilled that you're taking time to talk about it because it's not a topic that most pastors feel equipped to talk about. You know, the fact that you're willing to devote your podcast time to this, it means so much to me. And um, I'm just really honored to talk about what churches and um, pastors can do to create what I call mental illness literate congregations. Mental Um, illness literate. I like that a lot. We have found that when we do episodes about mental health, depression, burnout, those kinds of things, they get downloaded a lot. That is something that really speaks to pastors. From your own experience, is that something that you're finding as well? Yeah, and I think that's for a couple of reasons. One, because mental illness is real and it's common. And so pastors are dealing with folks having with mental health issues. I mean, even at Saddleback, we've got probably 20, 25% of our pastoral care calls have something to do with mental illness. So pastors, this isn't like something that pastors, oh, I don't have time to think about, you know, mental illness. I, I don't, I've got too many other things I'm working on. No, it's like at least a quarter of your pastoral care calls right now are going to be from people who are living or dealing with mental health issues. So it's there, it's real, it's common. It's just that seminaries and Bible college don't prepare people very well for talking to folks about mental health issues. And often pastors just don't know what to do. But on the need side, studies have shown Ed Stetzer, at, um, when he was at Lifeway and stuff, had conducted a study a couple years ago, and some others have shown that like 25 to 30% of people will go first to their pastor before they'll even go to a mental health professional wow. or to a doctor. So they're coming asking for help, and we just need to make sure that we can help pastors do better what they're already doing. Okay. You know, even in my own family, we've had experience with some of this. So some of this hits close to home to us and, and someday we may, we may talk about that story. And, you know, you have for, maybe for those who don't know, Kay, maybe you could just in a nutshell, um, describe why you are so passionate about this issue. Well, it's incredibly personal to me. My youngest son, Matthew, was mentally ill from the time he was very young. I mean, maybe three or four But because we didn't know that children could have mental illness, we just thought he was different or we just thought he would outgrow some of the behaviors that that he that he showed. Um, He was you know, I had two older. He had two older siblings. So I'd already was an experienced parent and he was just different from the get go. I just never, ever thought that it could be mental illness. But when he was seven he was diagnosed with depression. And from there, there was just sort of this cascade of diagnoses and, and illnesses. And at 27, Matthew um, took his life, which was four years ago. And um, this was after decades then of, of severe mental illness. So nothing could be more personal to me than um, helping people living with mental illness, their families, and those who are struggling with suicidal thoughts. Okay, um, I remember the the weekend when I opened my laptop and I saw that. And, you know, I'm sure so many people can say the same thing and how my wife and I, you know, grieved with you over that. And I'm thinking now, what are the myths that 
people have about mental illness, you know, because, you know, you think, well, you know, a pastor's family, you know, prayer and, and, you know, even mental medical help and counseling and all that, you know, these, there, there are answers and there are, there are paths to follow, but what are some myths that we have about that? Well, you touched on some of them. And one of them is just that, that mental illness is real. You know, the body is a whole and the brain is a part of the body. So sometimes something can go wrong with your kidney, something can go wrong with your thyroid, but something can go wrong in your brain. So when things go wrong in our body, illness results. So mental illness is, you know, part of, uh, it's a, it's a brain disease. Uh, there's so much we don't know. There's so much that we can't pinpoint at the same time, I mean, we are a whole being, so we're, we're physical, we're, you know, we're spirit, we're body, we're soul. So whenever something goes wrong in our spirit, things can happen when things go wrong in our mind, when things go wrong in our emotions. So it's, it's complicated, but it's real. It's, it's not about being possessed by a demon. That's one of the myths that still is out there. Uh, another myth is if you if you pray hard enough, if you memorize scripture, if you confess sin, in other words, it's not your fault, but that's one of the myths that it's your fault if you have a mental illness, it's considered a character defect. And that's from centuries and centuries of misperceptions about mental illness. So, you know, the myth that it's purely demonic, that it's a lack of faith, that it's a character issue, that it's not very common that um, the only way to treat it or to get rid of it, quote, is to is is spiritual um, means, and that if you ever go to counseling or take medication for a mental illness, that you really aren't very spiritual and that you don't have faith. Those are all myths and misperceptions about mental illness. When the reality is, as I said, we're a whole, we're a body, and things go wrong in our body. There is marvelous treatment, especially when people, when the illness is caught early, people respond to treatment, to medication. I always say what I've learned about it is that we should go after it on every dimension. That yes, you should attack mental illness spiritually. You need to be in touch with God in a surrendered heart, seeking fellowship and communion with other believers. You need to to see your doctor. You need to go get a diagnosis. So you need to treat it medically. You may need a psychiatric evaluation. You may need medication. And then I say, it, it depends on us on how much we're, your physical state, like what are you eating? Are you eating just, are you surviving on donuts and Coke? Because you, you are, how can your brain function well? So, you know, eat as best you can. Make sure you're exercising, get enough sleep if they're broken relationships and habits and addictions that are a part of it. So there's not just any one solution. And I think that's a myth. There's only one solution. There's not. It's go after it on every one of those levels. And to me, that seems to be to offer the most optimum chance for, for health and well-being and sometimes for people completely, completely healed. But that comes down to God's business. I can't, I don't get to control who God heals and how he does it. But the spirit is part of it. So is the physical. So is um, the men. It all goes together. I think that there's so much wisdom to this holistic approach to mental health that you're talking about. And I think a lot of times we only hear one piece of that given at any given time. Well, it's just medicine. Well, it's just therapy. Well, it's just a, a, a healthier lifestyle. And to hear you really talk about all of those components working together, I think it should be helpful for the pastors who are listening to know 
there's no easy solutions to this. It's a holistic, whole life kind of a situation that needs to be controlled and dealt with. Yeah. And and as I said, most pastors don't get much training in Bible college or seminary um, about mental health, mental illness. So often they just, they don't really know what to do. And so they fall back on what they do know, which is prayer and Bible study and scripture memory and fellowship with other believers. And, you know, and that they know that's in their wheelhouse. And so, you know, they can, they know to go to that, but they aren't always equipped to be able to say, Hey, you know what? In our community, there are also people that can help with all sorts of mental health needs. And I've got a list right here of of the people in our community that are good resources for you. So to be able to do both is what a gift to our, to the folks in our congregations when we understand mental illness and we can actually offer help on every level. So that leads right into what I was about to ask, which is how can pastors be better equipped? So seminary and Bible college, yeah, they give us a lot of uh, information about the Bible, a lot of tools for study. Those are wonderful things for a pastor to have. But like you said, you know, if 25-30% of people are coming to their pastor first, and our pastors listening right now know of these situations. I've had young women come to my office and tell me about thoughts of suicide. I've had uh, young men come and talk to me about uh, depression and things like that. How can we as pastors be better equipped to handle those situations when they come? I am a huge believer in continuing to educate yourself. And again, this, you might be tempted to say, well, you know, I've got to, if I'm going to read, I've got to read about sermon prep. I've got to, I've got to study the book of John because I've got a sermon series coming up or something. And so it's really tempting to just spend your educational capital, if you will, on things that you think just are around sermon preparation or leadership. But I would really um, encourage all those that are listening to read Dr. Matthew Stanford's book, Grace for the Afflicted. It is a fantastic book. It's it's a great primer for somebody um, who doesn't really know much about it. He writes it in a easy to understand format. You don't have to, you know, have your PhD to be able to plow through it. It's just, it's, it's meant for the average person to explain mental illness, explain different diagnoses, some treatment options. He's, he's a amazing Christian man. And I highly recommend that book. Um, Amy Simpson has written a book called Troubled Minds. And she grew up, her parents were in ministry and her mother lived with schizophrenia. And so Amy really talks from that lived experience of growing up with a parent who had mental illness, who was also in ministry, and how the church um, both failed and succeeded in supporting them. Great book, Troubled Minds by Amy Simpson. So I would just say those are quick things that I would recommend that every pastor should read. There's another book that's a little, you know, a little more scholarly, but one of my absolute favorite books, it's by um, Professor John Swinton from the University of Aberdeen, and it's called Resurrecting the Person. It's one of those books that, you know, some folks might find a little more challenging because they might not agree with everything he says, but he makes a case for the radical friendship that God has extended to us. You know, we have such shallow understanding of friendship, and God friended us when we were thumbing our nose at him, going the complete opposite direction, and he radically friended us. And and Professor Swinton makes the point that that's exactly what the church is to do and be, to radically friend those who are different than us so that we extend to them the grace of God. It It's probably revolutionized my own approach to ministry more than any book I've read in the wow. last 10 years. That's really interesting, Kay. And I'm wondering, 
In the last four years, what have you learned about mental illness that you didn't even know, you know, before four years ago? Has there been something that maybe has been surprising to you in the last four years as you've, you know, dug into this? Yep. Two things. One is the depth of the pain and the other is the depth of the stigma. We were so caught up in our own lives because caring for Matthew and being in a relationship with someone who has a severe mental illness is exhausting and his his suicidal thoughts um, and suicidal attempts became more pervasive. We just often felt like we were living um, in an emotional torture chamber. He was tortured and we were tortured and um, just seeing our way through a day um, never knowing if this could be the day that he would would die was it was just horrific, so hard. And so once he passed away and I, I began to listen to the stories of other people, I recognized the depth of pain that that mental illness brings to people's lives. There's a spectrum of, of mental illness. I mean, all of us experience anxiety at different times. You know, you lose your job. You're going to feel some depression. You have a child that um, is not doing well in school. You're going to feel some anxiety. So depression and anxiety, all of those things are part of our normal human emotions. But but along that spectrum, as as maybe depression or anxiety or, or psychotic thoughts or an eating disorder or you know, some other mental illness begins to take over our lives so that it affects, you know, it interferes with work, interferes with your family, interferes with friendships. That's when it starts moving into mental illness. And so as I began to talk to people who were along that spectrum and suffering greatly, it's broken my heart um, to know that Matthew, he's not, he wasn't alone in that depth of suffering and struggle. And um, so there's the pain of those living with and the pain of the families who love them. And then I've been amazed and shocked and broken by the depth of stigma that there is around uh, mental illness. When I was a primarily an HIV advocate for a decade, um, and, and I got used to hearing people around the world whisper in my ear, I'm living with um, you know, HIV, I'm HIV positive, or I, or I have AIDS. And they whispered because the stigma was so great. I, they could lose their families, their homes, their jobs, their friendships. It, the stigma is still huge. But I wasn't prepared for the way that people now whisper in my ear, I, I have bipolar disorder. I have an eating disorder. I live with suicidal thoughts. And they tell me those things in a whispered voice because the stigma is still huge and pervasive, and profound, and painful. And I didn't know either of those things before Matthew died. Wow, that's, uh, that's a lot. And you thought, all, I mean, obviously, you've lived through this, you've suffered through this, you've experienced all of this. And with permission to speak freely, how do you wish pastors how do you wish they would think about this? And what do you wish, like in, in a perfect world, if you could just paint the picture and it would happen, how do you want pastors to shepherd their people in light of the fact that so many of them, if the pastor doesn't approach it, will never tell them that the people will never tell their pastor that they have mental mental illness. How, what, do, what do you want to say to pastors to help them with this? Well, Pastor, you can reduce the burden of suffering that people in your congregation are experiencing by 
some very simple things. Probably the easiest thing of all that I would say, I mean, I, I have about, you know, six that I say kind of simple things that I think um, every church can do. You don't have to be a big church like Saddleback to be able to have um, a ministry to people living with mental illness. And I'll, if there's time, I'll go over those briefly. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Well, right, so let me just do those briefly and, and you'll see what I'm going to say along this. And it's based on the acrostic church. Um, we can't do anything without an acrostic around here. And uh, <laughs> so using the word church, because I really do believe the church has um, a vital role to play for people living is the first is uh, choose to care. Uh, it costs no money, none to choose to become a caring and embracing congregation that decides you're going to, you're going to care for people. You're not going to leave them out on the fringes. You're going to have a compassionate heart toward people who are suffering with mental illness. That in itself will change, change the lives of those in your congregation. Just make a decision that you're going to have a compassionate heart. Then uh, the, the H is to um, help with practical needs. When I was diagnosed with breast cancer, there were people that lined up to help me, you know, give us, bring us meals, take my kids to school, drive me to the doctor. But as Amy Simpson, whom I mentioned, she says that mental illness is the no casserole illness. Hmm. And um, I just pretty much can guarantee you that if somebody in your congregation this week received a diagnosis of, you know, general anxiety disorder or panic attacks or, or major depression, I can pretty much guarantee you that nobody volunteers to bring them a casserole. Yeah. And we can make a difference in just offering practical help to people. Can I, can I go with you to your doctor appointment? Can I, can I watch your kids today while you, you know, have a little bit of time to yourself to just process what, what's going on? So practical needs. Um, you is to unleash volunteers. We've got people in our churches ready to come alongside those living with mental illness. If we'll just give them that as a vision. The R, again, that costs no money but will radically change your church is to remove the stigma. Yeah. The pastor stands up on a Sunday morning and in his or her pastoral prayer says, God, there are people sitting here today who are living with depression, barely hanging on. There are people here today with anxiety that it took everything that was in them to get out of bed and come here today. And God, we recognize that among us. And Lord, would you bring your comfort just to mention, just to mention a mental illness in a pastoral prayer will be staggering to some folks to feel like, Somebody cares about what's going on in my life. The pastor preaches a message on what does the Bible say about how did Jesus respond to people's sickness? How does God as a compassionate God? So remove the stigma. Costs nothing. The other C is to collaborate with the community. Okay, so maybe you don't know very much, but I guarantee you there are mental health organizations in your community yes. that are trustworthy. NAMI. National Alliance on Mental Illness offers free classes, free support. Their website is amazing. You can educate yourself. Have them come talk to your congregation at a you know midweek service about what is mental illness and what can we do. And then the last H is to offer hope because there ain't nobody got hope like the Church of Jesus Christ. We have hope for people, not for just this life, but for the life to come. And so every church can be engaged in a meaningful way with people with mental illness without spending any money, without having to hire a staff. This is all about what we're going to do with our hearts and our attitudes and our hands. That's incredible. And we had 
maybe four or five episodes ago, it might be more now, I don't know, we had uh, a couple women talking about sexual abuse in the church. And we asked them, how, how, can you, uh, how can we as pastors help? Like, how can we as pastors uh, help people who are in these situations, who have come out of these situations? And she, she, one of the women said, just talk about it from the platform. Yep. yep. And I thought, well, that's easy. And I was pre. I had a message coming up, and I and I talked about it. No, I didn't make the sermon about it, but I mentioned right. it. I just right. mentioned it within, and people right. afterwards talked to me about sexual abuse. Um, Absolutely. So, and I'm hearing you saying the same exact thing here about depression. You talk about yeah. it from the platform, pray about it in your prayers. It, it's transformative. Just today, I was telling Jeff when we as pastors are on the platform with a microphone, we have the opportunity to speak life into people. Absolutely. And uh, and so I just want to reaffirm it. What you just said is is dynamite, the whole church acrostic. But uh, that piece where you're just releasing the stigma and you're removing the stigma and you're talking about it, that's going to be powerful, Pastor, for well, you and to do. Excuse me. I'm so sorry I didn't interrupt no, you. No, please. Uh, well, and, you know, there are so many studies that, that show, um, I'm thinking of a podcast I heard a couple weeks ago from the Allender Center, um, Dan Allender, and he he was talking about trauma and that when you talked about sexual abuse, it made me think of it. And, and he was, um, actually, I think it was Diane Langberg and her, Oh, this is another good book. Really good book. <laughs> suffering in the heart of God. Got to read that book. Everybody in ministry has to read suffering in the heart of God. Okay. Powerful by Diane Langberg. She talks about in that book that when people go to church, you know, let's just say there's a woman in your church who experienced sexual abuse maybe, or domestic violence in her home or growing up. And she comes to church for 15 years. And not one time in that 15 years, does she ever hear any conversation about sexual abuse Mm. or domestic violence? And after a while, Diane Langbird says, the transformative power of God is not really allowed to move deeply in her heart because there's, there forms a disconnect. In other words, her life is not mentioned at church. So that communicates to her that either one, her life experiences don't really matter, or two, her life experiences are shameful and shouldn't be talked about right. at church. And three, the gospel has nothing to do with what's happened to her. But but when we hear our stories mentioned in church, sexual abuse, mental illness, depression, domestic violence, um, when those things are mentioned in church suddenly we can connect our life experiences with our faith. And then the transformative power of God is unleashed to work in us. Okay. As you're talking, I'm just thinking about the the pain of the person whose life is never mentioned at church, right? Just the, the you know, the, their lives are wrong. You know, my life is wrong. I am wrong. Yep. And I, I just have to show somebody who's not really me when I go to church. And a couple of years before Matthew died, we had a, a boy in our church, 18 years old, who uh, took his life. And in our community, we've had, I've got two guys that I know who both had 27 year old sons uh, who died too young. And uh, there's, there's a ton of pain in this. And uh, could you just speak just for a minute to the pastors who he or she has a, a kid maybe who's going through some of this stuff and they're just, they're afraid of the worst, you know, and they hear about stories like Matthew or they, or they hear, they have stories in their community where it ends up in the worst happens, but it, the worst hasn't happened yet. And they're just, they're in that 
emotional torture chamber like that you talked about, you and Rick were in. Could you speak with the, to them for a second? Is there hope? Is there hope for a parent like that? Yeah, there is. And um, I, I might be the odd poster child for hope, but actually I have more hope than I've ever had before. Hmm. I had to rebuild my hope after Matthew died because what I so desperately wanted was to him for him to be healed and be a part of mental health ministry with us side by side. And that that's not what happened. And that's a whole other conversation. But even though the worst, my worst nightmare has happened in so many, so many families, that is not the way the story is going to end. I, I mean, we could do a whole nother podcast just on suicide and suicide prevention. But for those folks who are sitting today with a child, um, you know, of any age that's that's living with a mental illness and suicidal thoughts, do not give up hope. I mean, go out on that audacious limb of faith and find the verses and the songs and the 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 people who can believe in faith with you that your child, your young adult son or daughter um, is going to find um, the healing and the help that they need to manage their mental illness, that they're going to live um, their, their lives out fully, that they're, they're going to be able to manage um, life and work and relationships. I, I mean, parents of all people, we cannot give up on hope. Could you tell but, us one story? Do you have one story to tell us of a story that you know where where the the child has has found absolutely. a better better place? Yeah, absolutely. I'm thinking right now. I mean, he literally walked by my window a few minutes ago. I mean, it's providential that you would ask that question. There's a young man um, that uh, works for us, and um, when he was a teenager, he was in great despair and um, was actually in the position um, to take his life. He was um, he had what he needed. It was in front of him. He he was ready to to end his life, and there was a moment in which God broke through that and and just reminded him of hope. Today, he is a married man with a beautiful daughter and a, a meaningful ministry. And he tells the story over and over of how he was literally at the point of ending his life and he chose differently and got help. He today is a, a, a different person. So yes, absolutely. And there's treatment, there's hope. And, and I would say that so many kids develop mental illness when they're younger. And if you have a younger child that you think is something's not quite right, and you've just never even entertained the possibility that there might be, um, you know, mental illness involved, please pay attention to that. Please get them evaluated because the sooner children are um, evaluated and are um, treated for mental illness, much greater positive outcome happens for them. And here's just a little statistic for your listeners. 50% of all mental illness will show up by the time um, a child is 14, 75% by the time they're um, in their early 20s. Wow. So mental illness starts younger than we think it does. Don't throw that baby out with the bathwater and think that there couldn't possibly be anything going on because there can. So pay attention, make sure you're talking to your child that you don't, that you don't live in denial that you don't keep it and think it's a shameful thing that your child might have a mental illness. It's a part of the body and parts of the body can go, can stuff can happen. And so get treatment, get help, seek, seek intervention. All of those things that I talked about prayer, you know, spiritual, physical, emotional, what they're eating, exercise, all of those things together. But 
particularly for a teenager, do not ignore this Hmm. and be willing to ask the question when you notice your child maybe is grumpy when they haven't been grumpy. I mean, over a period of, you know, a couple of weeks, maybe they're more irritable. Maybe they lose pleasure in all the things that they've always liked to do. They don't want to be with their friends. They, or they're more, they're way more aggressive or they're not doing well. You put all those signs together, please pay attention. And Kay, would you say that the world we live in today for a parent with a seven-year-old who's having issues are we in a better spot today? Do, do we know more? Is it a, a little bit better than it was maybe when Matthew was seven and you were the mom and you didn't know as much as you know today? It is better, but there's so much more you know, that needs to happen. Um, there still aren't enough pediatric services for children, but do not let that stop you from going to your primary care doctor and asking for an evaluation. And, and I can't overemphasize the fact that we've learned that traumatic events in in young children affect their developing brains. And it's, it's so funny. Children are both resilient and very vulnerable. Um, children are resilient um, and can recover from the most terrible things, you know, that happen in their little lives. But they're also very vulnerable to what they call adverse childhood experiences um, that create trauma and, and affect their brains. And And so being really aware of that, being careful with that, and making sure that that you're paying attention. Um, Our lives are pretty busy, and none of us want to think that we're too busy for our kids. But honestly, I heard somebody the other day say, I'm too busy to check to see if my 14-year-old is taking her medication. I, I, I literally wanted to grab her by the shoulders and shake her and say, Mama, Mama, you you don't even know what you're saying. Yeah. You don't understand what you're saying. You are giving a message to your girl that you don't mean to give. Hmm. She needs to matter to you more than your work. So, um, not to too hard transition. Uh, so, Jeff's favorite episode ever of our podcast is called Our Ideal Sunday Morning. In it, we joke around about uh, so much money that the offering plates can't hold it all and the deacons doing cartwheels down the aisle and things like that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I want you to tell me your ideal church situation where there's no stigma attached. Tell me what the church looks like, the local congregation looks like that is on top of this. There's no stigma and they are on top of it. Your ideal, you know, mental health church, what what would that look like? Yep, it's a place where um, people are practicing that radical friendship of God and uh, they're looking at each other through eyes of compassion and acceptance and a lot of me too's so that people don't have to whisper anything about their lives Mm. at church, that it's a completely safe place to struggle because the deal is we all struggle and the message of the church needs to be, please don't struggle alone. Your struggle is welcome here. And in that place where we're all acknowledging that we're broken and um, in need of God's grace and have broken brains and broken bodies we all have gifts to share. And my story, I can tell you my story, and I can tell you where I'm struggling with God and where my faith, I'm having a hard time putting it into practice. And you're telling me about that. And together we feed each other bits of the bread of life hmm. and, and fed and we're strengthened. And your gifts and my gifts are honored. And I may live with a mental illness and 
You may have experienced domestic violence, you know, uh, growing up, or your parents had a traumatic divorce and and it's affected you and and my anxiety has affected me, but God's gifted us both. And we share that and affirm each other's gifts. And uh, yeah, we practice that radical friendship and acceptance of God. I love that. My dad struggles with depression and has for his whole life, but never even talked about it until he was in his late 50s. Suicidal thoughts, depression, you know, all that comes along with that. And I'm thinking now of a pastor who, my dad was a pastor, who is like my dad and doesn't feel like they can get up in the platform and say, I struggle with a mental illness, whether it be depression, anxiety, uh, whatever, you know, whatever it might look like. You know, what would you say to that pastor who who doesn't feel like they can get up and, and speak from their own heart on these issues because of the stigma? Well, if anybody's in the place to break the stigma, it's the pastor. That's part of the role of pastors is to be stigma busting on fire for Jesus people. <laughs> I like so, stigma busting. I like I'm putting that on my business card. That's right. So we it's really up to those in leadership to start knocking down stigma a brick at a time. And there's no better way to break down stigma than to be vulnerable about your own life, no matter what that is. It's part of leadership. It's it's often taking people where they don't even know they need to go or, and don't always want to go. So when a pastor is public about his or her own struggles or own life. I'm thinking of our college pastor who uh, a couple years ago gave a message and talked about how he was living with bipolar. And he said, I've never been this public with it before. And some of you may decide there's no way I'm talking to that guy again. I can't trust him. What if he's, what if he's goofy? What if he, what if he, what if he, and he come up with all these things and he said, but you know what? I'm willing to take that risk. Hmm. And um, it's it's really funny this week because it is Mental Health Awareness Month. I just did a podcast with um, our women's minister and our college pastor on mental illness in the ministry. So somebody wanted to segue from your podcast to um, this uh, Facebook Live that's posted on my website kwarren.com. They could uh, see a further conversation about that. But literally, the pastor has the ability to bust down the stigma for everybody else. We found that telling stories. So not just our own, but we're a huge Celebrate Recovery church. Um, I mean, Celebrate Recovery is one of the backbones of of Saddleback. And when people hear the story of somebody who looks, you know, similar to them and you go, wow, if he's living with that or she's experiencing that, maybe I'm not so weird after all. Mm -hmm. And so it allows these me too moments that increase fellowship, that increase unity, because we're not living in fear. I I said this week that, yeah, there's some problems that come along with being really honest and vulnerable about your own life. But I would rather live with the awkwardness of, of freedom and honesty than the awkwardness of secrecy. That's excellent, Kay. So good. And thank you for helping us to encourage pastors. Thank you so much for the privilege of being with you guys. You're, you've asked some great questions, and I, and I hope they're helpful. I hope, this is, I hope this is helpful to all those that listen. Well, I'm very thankful to Kay Warren for her openness and her willingness to share her and Rick's experience with their son, Matthew. Thankful that she has taken her pain and translated it into the growth and the betterment of other people. And... We know that it's going to result in people who struggle with mental health issues in getting help. It's going to result in them getting help. Fewer people suffering needlessly. 
more churches open to having conversations around mental health, the stigma continuing to be removed from our conversations and from our churches and from our lives. And Pastor, as she shared those suggestions of how to create a mental health literate church, I hope that several of them you said, hey, I can do that in my church. And I hope that you do. And I hope that you also would encourage all of your leadership to remember in prayer and in messages and in lessons and in Bible studies to apply the truth of the scriptures to people who are struggling with mental health issues and to remove the stigma in your church. Pastor, thanks so much for joining me this weekend. And I hope you have a great weekend. I hope you have a wonderful time with your church family. And again, I hope you're able to take some of these suggestions from Kay and begin to implement them in your church. Have a wonderful weekend, and I'll catch up with you on Monday on the Coaching for Pastors podcast.